If you would, if you want to pull out your Bible or look on your phone, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verse 8, but we'll begin by reading the first eight verses. And uh, we've been going through a series on Beatitudes, and we're coming to our sixth one. So hopefully you've been able to join us, because they all are, are, sorry, they are kind of linked together. So uh, we may see that as we read this, but if you would, join me now beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word, that we might see you and enjoy you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by making a confession, and uh, a confession that may horrify some of you that have standards. And that is, I love buffets. I have loved buffets ever since I was a little kid. Uh, I would go home to visit family in Iowa, and we would go to brunch at this hotel restaurant, and I could just get all the bacon and sausage I wanted and just skip everything else. And then when I was probably 11 or 12, I lived in a small town in Missouri, and this new popular restaurant showed up in town, brand new building, it's called Shoney's. Now that was, Again, just another excuse for me to pass on everything seemingly except bacon and sausage. But I'll admit it, it's still true today. If I go to a conference or a wedding and I see one of those tables set up, there's something great about being able to justify getting as much of what you want of one thing and passing on everything else that is gross. And I just love it. Now, I do fear that during this time of the coronavirus, it may be killing the buffet, and I may never see them again, so I should have have been thankful. Now, you may not know this, but some of you probably do, is that uh, the founding father, Thomas Jefferson, also took kind of a buffet-style approach to his Bible. Uh, He literally would go through and read it, and the parts that he didn't like or he didn't want to follow, he would just cut out, and he kept the rest of it. Now, in case you're wondering, that's not okay. We should not do that. The Bible is not there to be a buffet, and neither are these beatitudes. There's no optional beatitudes in this list of things. Uh, We can't really say that I want to partake in blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the, the kingdom of heaven, but then pass on being merciful because that's inconvenient for us. No, all the beatitudes apply to us because they're all linked, and they all call to us at some ethical level. They serve kind of as ethical guideposts for the Christian life, and they are graces that were intended to display and grow in over time. So like I said, we're looking at the sixth beatitude today, which is, blessed are the poor, uh, the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now perhaps purity of heart is an intimidating topic to you as you think through it. You may think that's going to be very difficult. Uh, I'm not very good at being pure in heart. You may think, if I could cut out one of the Beatitudes, this might be it, because it's probably going to call me to change. But let's not forget, 
It is the blessed who are pure in heart. It, those who get to see God are pure in heart. And these are good things. These are things that we desire, hopefully. So as we go and look at this passage this morning, as we consider this beatitude, I want to kind of quickly explore it by talking about what it is, what it isn't, and what it calls for. So what it is, what it is not, and then what it calls for. But we'll actually begin by looking at what it's not. And what this beatitude is not is not a salvation equation. It's not an equation that you work so that you might see God. It's not a spiritual equation where you plug in X behavior and out pops God's approval or God's blessing upon you. And I say that because if you read it on the surface, it kind of seems like that might be what it's saying. It seems that like perhaps there is a spiritual dogma that I need to follow, and if I do that, there will be spiritual blessing on the back end. And the reason that is easy for us to see is because it's also the natural bent of our hearts. It's a, the natural bent of our hearts is to try and earn our way into God's good favor. But the Bible just doesn't teach that. Even though it may seem on the surface like a formula signaling, be good and God will be good to you, that's not what it's saying. Now, if you think about it, we come across this uh, honestly, almost in every single one of the Beatitudes. They all kind of seem like one of these equations, but that's not what's happening. Now, if you turn, if you just glance back at verse 8, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That really does sound like if I'm pure enough, if I'm good enough in my purity, I will get to see God. I will get to go to heaven. He will accept me. And it also seems like if I'm not pure enough, if I'm not good enough, I will not get to see God. And that can be very troubling, especially if you have a sensitive soul and you know that you're sinful before God. Now, this idea of a spiritual equation for some of you may seem silly, that there's no way that that can be true. And that in fact, it's not true. It cannot be true. In fact, it's a terrible thought because it will not work. Being good enough so that you might be able to see God is not a workable plan. If you read Romans 3, you'll understand something about your heart that's being called to be pure. And that is it's corrupted. It's in need of a total overhaul. It can never be good enough, according to God's standard, to earn salvation. Uh, this past week, I do our, our grocery shopping every, every uh, week for our family. And I was going into Sam's Club and... As I was walking in, there was someone coming out the entrance. And if you've ever been to Santa Club, you know that's a big no-no. You don't do that. You get scanned out at the other door, and that's the only way this works. Well, this person walks up, and he wants to be scanned out. And the lady, uh, the sweet lady, was like, I can't do that. you got to go over here. And he erupts and screams at her. Uh, he uses some, some bad language, and he's demanding that she scan him out. And she's saying, I can't do that. And he's thinking, she just won't. But the reality is, is it was impossible for her to scan him out. Because the only thing she had was this electric counter that would help her tally the number of people walking into the store. So as much as she might have wanted to help him, as much as he was yelling and angry at her, even she could have been wanting to do it with every fiber of her being just to get rid of this person. But it was impossible for her to do. It was simply impossible. 
It's kind of like your ability to be pure in heart so that you might see God. It is impossible. You don't have the capacity to do that. Our ability to be pure in heart to the level of meriting salvation before God is simply impossible. The good news is God is not an angry man just sitting there yelling at you. But we do see here that there should be some kind of desire in us that would make us eager to be holy, that would want us to be pure in heart. So what might that be? And I think that we get a hint or a clue to that in the very first beatitude that we looked at, which was the pure in spirit. And I mean, the poor in spirit. We'll come back and talk about that in a second. But let's consider this question. If this is not a salvation equation, then how do we read this beatitude or all the other beatitudes for that fact? If it's not a spiritual equation for blessing? Well, for starters, I just mentioned it, the very first beatitude tells us that these are no equations for spiritual blessing. In fact, it says that salvation is a gift. It is not something that earned. It is a gift of grace for those who are poor in spirit, for those who see their need spiritually, for those who see their inability spiritually, and they turn and run to Christ in faith and repentance and are saved. So that's the first thing that we should note. This beatitude is not to earn salvation, but it's actually a beatitude given to people who have already come to Christ. It is a beatitude for people who are followers of God. The second thing here is we should note that this idea of meriting God's favor by law-keeping has long been discussed in church history, and it's been outright rejected by almost everyone, maybe no one more vehemently than the reformer Martin Luther. In his response to this idea of law-keeping, meriting salvation in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this about the Sermon on the Mount. He says it's a kind of new law, like the old law, having at least two divine purposes. So he says that the Beatitudes first have a purpose in that it shows the non-Christian that he cannot please God by himself because he cannot keep the law, and so it directs people to Christ for justification. So Luther is saying that the Beatitudes, if you approach it like a spiritual equation, it should drive you to your, see your need for a Savior. And then he says the second thing is this, that it shows the Christian who has been to Christ for salvation how to live so as to please God. Or as the Puritans summarized the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Beatitudes, it says, the law sends us to Christ to be justified, and Christ sends us back to the law to be sanctified. So Jesus isn't sending us this beatitude telling us to behave so that we might see God. No, rather he is teaching us that purity of heart is a work and a fruit of someone who is already saved and is part of the group that will see God since we are saved, since we do seek him through his grace. This appeal to be pure in heart is an instruction for the Christian because God has created them to be something in Christ, and that is to be like him, to become pure, to become holy. And I will say this, there is part of this passage you read, it, it sounds like, no, it's just blessed if you're pure in heart, if you obey this way. Indeed, that is true. There is something that is pleasing to God about this, that it, it delights him. There is something inherently enjoyable that brings happiness to the soul when you obey God, that brings satisfaction. 
But don't be mistaken, being pure in order to merit heaven is not a possibility. That is in itself a path to a prison for your soul and for your mind. So if you desire to see God, let this beatitude send you to the cross for salvation first and foremost. Let it send you to Christ who will cover you with his perfect record. He will give you his purity and then return to this as the appearance that sends us back to the law that we might be sanctified, that we might become more like Jesus. So what this is not is not a salvation equation. So let's talk about what it is for a second. What is purity of heart? I don't know if you recognize, if you just paid attention to your calendar, 2020 has thrown us all out of whack. But if 2020 had gone as planned, right now we'd be in the middle of the Summer Olympics. The Summer Olympics is my favorite time to cheer for those sports that I only cheer for every four years with all of my heart, right? And I'm always cheering for America, and I'm, I love the competition, I love the stories, and one of the things that always hits me is when they talk about these athletes, these men and women, talking about their commitment to their craft, especially these gold medal athletes. And if you look into their lives, their entire life revolves around their craft. They never stop training. They never stop pursuing this one purpose, which is winning. You could say they have a single-mindedness about themselves that sets them apart. They're different than 99.9% of the population. When it comes to training, it seems like there are no days off, no wasted days. When it comes to their nutrition, they make no sacrifices, no buffets for them, no donuts for them. It's miserable. They are constantly refining and improving themselves. They have this deep dedication about them because they want to be an Olympic champion. You don't really see many plumbers or school teachers who just so happen to also you know, hit the gymnastics gym a couple times a week and all of a sudden they're in the Olympics. That isn't how it works. Now, these men and women that we see on television in the Olympics have a very narrow, singular focus because they're devoted to one mission. When it comes to our appeal to be pure in heart, as we look in verse 8, from the language to what we understand, it also means something very similar to what was just described. It is a call to single-heartedness. It's a call to a devotedness to Jesus Christ above all else, an uncompromising commitment to him and him alone. And it's not just in what we do. It's in your thoughts. It's in your words. It's in your actions. And even goes down into your motives. To we're to be pure in our motives. They are to be unmixed. That means to bring all the areas of our lives under control of Holy Spirit. And that means the inner thoughts and the outer workings. Some uh, commentators describe purity using phrases and worded words like having an undivided heart or being utterly sincere or being free from hypocrisy. Many times in the Old Testament, as we read already in our uh, corporate uh, reading of Scripture, we see it in chapter 24 of the Psalms, what it means to be pure in heart is to be free from idols. David says, that who is going to, he asked the question, who's going to ascend God's holy hill or the hill of the Lord? And it's those with clean hands and a pure heart who do not lift their hearts or hands to idols, those things which are false. To be pure in heart is nothing less than to be a person who casts aside idols, to wage war against those comforts and pleasures and accomplishments that want to capture your attention and your allegiance. Idolatry is a big problem. 
Now, idolatry, whether it's money or comfort, possessions, a spouse, a family, romance, power, reputation, respect, whatever it may be, idolatry will always damage your soul because it always poisons your heart. If we're looking to be pure in heart, we have to avoid idolatry. Jesus also spoke to this need to be pure in heart many times when he, when he ministered to Pharisees. He often rebuked them, even condemned them. He didn't hate their outward obedience. What Jesus condemned was their lack of inward purity that seemed to be propping up this, this fake show that was propping up these outward demonstrations of purity. And I think this is where the key is, whether it's with the idol or whether it's what we see the Pharisees doing. The problem, the key issue is duality. It is duality in our lives because duality is the antithesis of purity in heart. What is duality? Duality is this idea of both hiding and projecting at the same time. Hiding the real me and projecting a false me to the outside watching world. It means hiding from others, but often even lying to ourselves. It is the gap between the real us and what other people see. Now, considering all that, the pure in heart, those who would seek to be pure in heart, have to seek to eliminate duality from their lives. The duality, you could think, maybe from what I think and what I do, what I'm thinking and what I say, and then what I really wanted to say. Uh, the duality that exists between my professed love for Christ and the actual very real love for the world that still exists inside of me. That's the duality that has to go away if we're to be pure in heart. And this is something we should desire because there is something inviting, something intriguing about having this freedom and joy that would come from an undivided heart, from a seamless life. Now, Jesus in the entire Bible teaches that God desires that we live a seamless life of devotion to him, and that is to be one without duality, a life where our inward love for God is genuine and sincere, and that overflows into worship and a love of neighbor. So, it's not a salvation equation, this beatitude, but what it is, is a call to be single-hearted in my love and devotion and commitment to Jesus and to him alone. And that goes all the way down into my thoughts, my feelings, my words, and my actions. So that leads us then to what does this call for? If that's what it's not, what it is, well, what is it calling me to? When I was a teenager, I worked for my dad during the summers, and he ran a hardwood flooring manufacturing company. And if you are looking up here feeling sorry for me because you're like, oh, that looks kind of warm up there. It's nothing compared to working inside of a hot factory in the middle of the summer in Georgia with no AC and hot machines running all around you, right? So this is, this is not a problem. But once a month during my job, I did tons of different things, but once a month, the whole factory would shut down and it would just be me and my dad and a couple salesmen. And we would actually go out into the warehouse and we would do inventory. Now, the whole purpose with inventory was to kind of get a picture of really what was going on. So we would go into the warehouse, we would start counting how much hardwood flooring was on hand. 
you would see how many pallets of red oak flooring there are, and white oak flooring, and hickory flooring, poplar flooring. There's lots of flooring. I can promise you the list still goes on. And then you get to go into how, what, of what width there is. And if you're one of the younger, more agile people, they're the ones who send you climbing up to the top and around things. It's very dangerous. But the reason for inventory was to get an accurate picture of what was going on, to know what they actually had to sell, what was selling well, what wasn't selling, what was wasteful. And they did a good job of finding out what, what was in demand and what they needed to do, what they even needed to change in production. So taking inventory thus led to making adjustments in how they did business. To not make adjustments would have been actually detrimental to their company. I say that because when I think about this beatitude, what it actually calls for is something very similar. I think you begin with taking inventory and then you make adjustments. So how do you do that? Well, I think I have two questions to help us with inventory and then two things with adjustment and we're done. So how, what does this call for? First, I think it calls for taking some inventory. It must start here because a lack of self-examination of who we are and what we're dealing with will lead to blind spots and it will prohibit you from being pure in heart. So here's the first question that we must all answer together, even, even as we sit here. Where in our life do we see duality? Where do we see duality in our life? Where is it that we put on a mask and we hide the real self? Where does the real you not match up? Another way to ask this question is this. What would devastate you if others found out about you? You're like, scratch that question. I don't like it. But yeah, what would devastate you if others found out? The answers to those questions, that, that first inventory question, that's the places of duality. Those are places we should take inventory and make note of. The second is this. What idols of the heart are hurting your purity of heart? So where is the duality? And then what are the idols of the heart that are hurting your purity of the heart? Idols that are hidden away in your heart that are polluting your love for God. Uh, in the book Gospel and Life, Grace Changes Everything, this question is posed. Why do we lie? Or why do we fail to love or break promises or live selfishly? That's the question. The answer was this. There is something besides Jesus that we feel we must have to be happy. Something that is more important to our heart than God. Something that is enslaving our heart through inordinate desires. So the question is, is what is that something? That something that you must have in order to be happy. What is that something that props up your life? That if it was taken away from you, would leave you miserable? The answer to that question is the idol of our heart. So the first thing we must do is take inventory. And then the last thing is we must make adjustments. It's one thing to take inventory. Like in my dad's company, if they had just taken inventory and then just kept doing what they were doing, that would have been miserable. They would have not been able to fill orders. They would not have been able to stay in business. Well, we can't just take inventory and then ignore what we find. So we have to make adjustments. And there's two things that I think we can do. The first is this. It's just some, don't hide. Don't hide. No more mask. No more duality. Let's not hide or deny the many problems that we have any longer. 
So that begins by starting with confessing it to the Lord yourself. Just in the privacy of your own heart, just confess to the Lord what is going on. And then talk to a friend. Talk to a spouse about it. But this is where healing and steps of change begin. This is also something really good for us to keep in mind as a church. And I think we actually do this pretty well. But we need to be a place where people are free to confess that they're not perfect. That they can admit their sin. That they need help and that they can receive help. The entire world right now seemingly wants to cancel anyone who makes a mistake. The good news is the gospel is not like that. Jesus came to save mistakes, to save people who make mistakes. So instead of shaming people like the world might do, who are spiritually needy, that need and are admitting their need for grace, let us welcome them in. Let us welcome and love the broken, because that's what God did for us when we are broken and stuck in our sin. So let's be a welcoming place for each other and for outsiders so that we might point them and point each other to the Savior who redeemed us. So the last one is this. This may be the most simple application you've ever heard in a sermon. The adjustment is just do it. That is the most famous marketing slogan I think of all time. Uh, But just do it. Perhaps you've known for a while that things need to change. The Lord says today is the day of salvation. Well, it's also the day of change. There's something about today I just need to make the move because now is the time. And I encourage you to make one step. Like Change is not going to come all at one time. But I think a fine application to be pure in heart is to take one step today towards that. Maybe it's praying to God and confessing that. Maybe it's talking to someone. Maybe it's stopping something. Maybe it's getting some help. Whatever it may be. Maybe it is... Uh, coming to Christ for the first time for salvation. Whatever it may be, I encourage you to ask the Lord what he might have you do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, your grace that changes us, that has saved us, and is making us new. We recognize that we in and of ourselves are not pure in heart, but it is the purity of Jesus which we rely on, that he pleads our case. And it's only because we do belong to you. We are the people who will see God. We are those who are considered blessed. It is because we are those people that we will seek to be pure in heart. And we are capable because you have redeemed us. You have saved us. You have given us your spirit. So, Father, we ask that we would be men and women and children who keep in step with your spirit, that we might walk in purity of heart. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.